Hey folks, with everything happening in the world right now, with the anti-black violence that we keep seeing happening in America, and now the non-violent as well as some violent demonstrations that we see all over the country, we, my wife and I, have had several conversations with one another, but also with our children. And it's been a, a long time coming that I wanted to have my wife on so you guys could meet her, hear from her. She is a load of wisdom, and I am so grateful to have her on the podcast with me. So uh, this episode is between seasons, so I don't even know what number to tell you this episode is, but just take a moment and uh, take this episode in. This may be the most important one we've recorded to date. This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Uh, today on the podcast is my best friend in the entire world. Um, she is... I like the other start better. What I say? This is a monumental. Like okay. you got to say all that. Okay. Hey everybody. Hey everybody. Today is a monumental day. He can talk more about me. Hey everybody. Today's a monumental day at Existential, here at Existential Studios at my kitchen table. I am with my best friend in the entire world, the person I go to the most for wisdom of anybody I know, the person who brought my babies into the world, made me a father. My wife, I don't know if better half is like. Oh no, it's right. Say. Is that true? It's. Thank you. I mean, I'm not. I'm not questioning whether or not you are my better half. They just ruined the intro. No, they didn't. It's fine. That's. No, they're fine. It's. No, it's not. It is, honey. Please. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Honey, you're talking about me. I want everybody quiet. Okay, please be quiet. It's. It is. I, was, I wasn't saying you're not my better half. I was asking if better half is like language. I don't know if that's patriarchal language or not. That's all oh, I'm saying. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, leave that out then. I'm not telling you. If it, you nobody gets to determine if it sounds good to you or not. Do you like being called better half? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now that you mention it. This is my wife, okay? That's all you need to know. My partner in crime and in life, and she has joined the podcast. Everyone welcome Julie Leak. today to talk about what's been going on in the world as a black mom and me as a black dad. As we're recording this, obviously, this week has been, um, I mean, America's on fire right now as we speak. Yeah. Turn the TV on right now. If you go on social media right now, there are protests, demonstrations. I actually just got off the phone with a friend who was at a demonstration in L.A. yesterday, and what he described to me sounds like a scene out of Handmaid's Tale. Um, so how are you feeling about all of that right now? I'm sad. Um, I'm sad that we are where we are as a nation. I'm sad that our kids 
are daily having conversations with us that break my heart. I'm sad that um, we have nieces and nephews who are little, who are going to grow up in a world that we are creating right now. That this can go one of two ways. It can get better or it can get worse. And I'm sad that we are where we are. It makes me angry and it makes me cry. Makes me sad. Makes you sad. Yeah. Like what is the what's the saddest thing to you about all of it? As a mom, I think about, first and foremost, the mothers who um, have had to grieve and cry over their dead sons and daughters. Um, I can't imagine, and I don't even like to think about what I would feel like, because I just can't. And then I'm sad that my kids are um, having to fight some of this fight with us. Um, and they cry and grieve over what they're experiencing right now, and that hurts me. Yeah, I mean, it's been sad for me. I, I mean, you know, sometimes I'm not sure if sad is the right way to describe it. Um, you know, having our kids say that they have cried, especially like Amaya and, and Gabby, because um, they are not the types to be overly emotional. They're overly drama, but they're not overly emotional. Right. And so for like them to be expressing to us that they have had moments of breaking down, and even like a few minutes ago, I heard Gabby upstairs saying, no justice, no peace, no racist police. Like, I don't want my children to know that chant. Yeah. Not because it's not a great chant. Obviously, it sticks with a 14-year-old who's never been to a demonstration, who's just only seen them. Like, the fact that it sticks to me, yeah, it's, it's a great line, but... And, and it should be used. The point being why we had to come up with that. Mm-hmm. I don't want her to, I don't want my 15-year-old to know that. Um, and even in jest, I have to use that or for us to be having all the conversations that we've had this week, which I don't want to spend too much time grieving over what is because it is that. The reason why we turned the microphone on and said we wanted to have a conversation was because we know that there are lots of parents out there who are listening, um, parents who have, um, we, we know a lot of white parents who adopted black children, which I think we should get to at some point yeah. uh, in our conversation. But just for any parent of any child, like what are things that like you feel are, are really important that parents be saying to their children or conversations that they should be having with their children right now? Well, when you asked me to come on, I I instantly thought there is a quote that I was like, I want to talk about this because I saw it on Instagram 
It's not my quote. It's by Jana or Johanna Riley. I'm probably not saying that right, but it says, question for the white folks on my timeline. What are you doing to make sure that you're raising children who won't kill mine? And I wanted to retweet it or repost it, but I didn't because I thought for a second, man, people won't understand if I just repost it. Hmm. Um, They won't get it. And so I think what, first and foremost, I hope that through this I don't know, podcast, whatever that we're doing, that people may hear some something and walk away and go and say, I have work to do with my kids because I don't want to raise kids who can potentially kill, if anybody else's kids, Julie and Corey's kids, or my nieces and nephews who are much younger than my kid's age. Um, so... I want to... I don't know. Remember what your question was. <laughs> so cut this out. You answered the question. All right. The question okay. asked. You already answered it. Okay. Gabby, stop moving around. It's, it's too loud. <laughs> so, like, I think when you're talking about, like, when you're talking about kids, like, little kids, babies, um... I've often thought about people who wind up places from being a kid like Gabby. Yeah. Right? She's 14. She's the life of the party. She's like, um, brings so much joy to our lives. And I think about like, at some point, a lot of adults were Gabby's or whoever else, whatever other kid out there is like that, that are gregarious and fun. Like, at some point in their life, something happens and they change. And, and I've thought it was tragic for someone like that to wind up on drugs or homeless, or um, in, in the case of our conversation, to wind up to wind up being killed in a senseless act of white supremacist anti-black violence. And so we were watching this video earlier of the little baby talking to the um, yeah. the dude, and 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 I. So it's this, it's this black guy. Looks like he's about twenty years old, and there's a like a looks like a one one and a half year old that's just talking gibberish, and they're having a conversation. He's speaking, um, and and the baby's talking back in gibberish, and they're act, he's acting like he's having a full on conversation with his baby. And I thought, wow, that's black joy. But immediately following that thought, I thought, but how many stories like this? How many people like this that are experiencing joy? months later, years later, decades later, experience the grief of having anti-black violence stamp their lives out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like, so that's kind of how I'm thinking through what you were just saying about like, you know, as parents, us thinking about, we're, we're already thinking we're raising kids that are going out into the world and how how do we raise children that can go out into a world that's full of more peace than the world that we're living in right now. Yeah, I mean, I think all the time that we have a responsibility as black parents of black children to teach our kids, educate our kids how to be black in today's society. And, 
you know, we have girls, so the conversation's, I think, a lot different having raising black daughters versus raising black sons today. Mm. But a lot of that conversation is crossing over. But I also think that we're also having to have a conversation with our kids that to me is a little bit unfair. Mm. We're also having to teach our kids how to talk to their black friends. I mean, their white friends. Mm. We're having to teach our kids how to have conversations with their white friends. And I think that's kind of unfair because we're doing the work that I feel like white parents should be doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And our kids are having to teach their friends things that their parents should be teaching them. So I feel like our kids are walking around with a lot of responsibility on their shoulders that is unfair. They're walking around with the responsibility of how do I need to operate as black girls, black kids in this world to keep myself safe, to get the education that I need, to get the scholarships that I need to get, to get the grades, how to function in classrooms where they're in all white spaces, how to function on sports teams when they're all white spaces. They're having to do all of that work. And then they're also having to carry the burden of educating their friends because a lot of times parents aren't doing the job. Mm, And that is not fair to our kids. That is not fair to my kids. That's not fair to anybody else's kids that are having to carry that same responsibility. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I want to let that, I want to say la AF that right there. That's, uh, wow. That's an, that is, I, I hadn't even thought about how unfair that is until you said that. In fact, like, you, you had, that's the first time I've ever heard you say that. You never said that before. You were, were you holding that till we got on, till the microphone you got turned on? You just don't be listening. I don't be to listening. Me. That's no. what you're going to say with a straight face. You don't be in listening. In front of everybody, all our friends are. You're going to make me look on my job like I don't be listening to you. Welcome to my world. Well, like, because, like, I already, feel like when I think about the tension and how unfair it is that we have to teach our children go out into the world with hope and joy like dream aspire make goals reach for the stars but also be aware of the fact that the the deck is stacked against you mm-hmm. and you are playing in an unfair playing field, one that is rigged so that you don't win. So it's they already have to learn at a young age how to navigate that. Well, let me and, and, now, and now, now that I'm saying that because it just popped in my mind that there are people who um, who hearing that would be like would feel some sort of way. And I'm going to tell a story real quick and then I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Because okay. it just, you know, it just, it just hit me. I remember when I did that talk, Circles Are Greater Than Squares, at that um, event or whatever in somewhere, wherever we were. And I remember in that talk, I said, I talked about how my dad used to teach us, me and my two brothers, that um, no matter what you do, how far you advance, how hard you work, how smart you are, you are still a nigger. That's what he would always say. He said over and over again. And I shared this with a group of people. Um, and after I shared that, I got some feedback from somebody who 
I used to work with, and their feedback from this older white male was, I hate that your dad told you that. So what would you say to the parent out there who feels like teaching your children that being black is a disadvantage to them is harmful to them, that we shouldn't tell them that? What would you say to a parent who says that? That's a good question. Um, I don't know that I, I... I guess it. this is a hard question for me to answer because I kind of understand mm-hmm. that sentiment, but at the same time, it's our reality. Mm. We have to teach our kids to know, hey, this world is still going to view you this way, But I think the only thing that that I would tell our kids now or that we say to our kids now is, yes, this world is set up in such a way where you're at a disadvantage, but we're also on the flip side of that, encouraging them to celebrate and be confident and not to look at their, not to just remain there as the world has set you up as in this position of, at dis- of disadvantage, but also to say you also have on the flip side of that the greatest gift that you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you are black and celebrate that, and you are not lesser than even though the world may see you as lesser than. Mm-hmm. So I understand the sentiment of it behind your dad explaining that to you because to me that is true, but there's another truth to that in that. You are not less than just because the world may see you as less than or because the workforce may see you as less than or though your school system may see you as less than. You're not that. Mm. Mm. There is a harsh reality that we need to teach our kids while at the same time encouraging them to not feel defeated by that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, it's just... I'm still just, my head's still spinning from knowing that those two realities exist. Our children have to carry that weight that we just talked about, which makes me even more uh, um, grateful that you said what you said and makes me understand it even further, how unfair it actually is, that on top of that tension, on top of that baggage, they also have to learn how to educate their white friends about microaggressions, white privilege, about American history, about the history of anti-black violence, about how the things that their friends say and do are microaggressions. Like as we talked about in the podcast when we had the girls on, we you know we talked about things like how how many times kids would come up and try to touch their hair, or the things that they'd say to them, or the the racist things that kids would encounter at school. And I never thought about tracing this back to parents who are either saying the wrong things or saying nothing at or all. Or saying nothing at all. So, like, what... And I'm like, you know, it's not our job either to educate white parents on how to educate their children. So, I'm not going to ask us to do that. But I will say, what what are some... What are where where should a white person go from this podcast? A white parent from this podcast to start educating their children, so that black other black children 
don't have to either educate them or be harmed by them? Before I answer that question, I think I, I want to clarify something also. So I don't want parents to hear us saying that our kids don't want to ever have to educate their friends. I think there is a part that, especially with our oldest, who's 18, that I think she enjoys being able to talk about these kinds of things with her friends. I think she enjoys being able to introduce them to new you know, ideas and new articles and new books to read. She just enjoys talking in general. Yes. And talking about her culture and her and and everything else. So I don't I don't want to say communicate that that should never happen. More importantly than that, what's most exhausting is when they then have to when they explain it, then they got to turn around and defend it. Mm. That's what's wearing my kids down. That's what's frustrating my kids. Mm. That's what's like makes me angry because then our, our kids are coming home and having conversations that we have to go, you know, talk them down from or, you know, add more encouragement to them, figure out more ways to relieve some of this stress that they're feeling because they got to turn around and go see these kids the next day at school. Hmm. So it's not just the conversations that are being had. It's when they have to then turn around and defend. So... Hmm. To answer your question, I think that from this podcast, I'm seeing a lot of our white friends that have just gone to Google, that have just gone to Amazon and purchased books. Mm -hmm. They've started following, you know, other thought leaders on this. They've started listening to podcasts. They've started asking their black friends, Mm. hey, can we go to lunch when all this stuff is over. I really want to talk to you. I've got some questions I don't understand. And they paid for lunch. Yes. Or they paid for that time. Yes. Yeah, like, because I, I just, I don't, mean to, I don't mean to cut you off. Even I do it all the time. I'm working on it, though. Like, they should not be drawing on black people's time, emotional energy, for the free 99. That oh, should totally. be something that they, I mean, I at think minimum, they should, you're buying lunch. Well, buying lunch, but at first you got to do, read something so that you have something to yeah, talk about. You work first. So that you have something, you have your questions because you read and did something beforehand. I don't think it's fair to go into this like, I haven't done any work. Can you just do all the work for me and tell me what I should be thinking? That's not fair. And it's like some of my kids' friends have done. They reach out and they say, hey, I, you know, I'm sorry for what you're going through. Someone asked my daughter the other day, can you send me some articles? Can you, I want to learn. My daughter did it because she's a good friend but I now looking back on it I wish I would she would have said actually go to Google or Bing or Bing or or why don't you here's my dad's podcast Mm -hmm. or here's Andre Henry here's some other people go read these things do some research and I'd love to talk to you about it after you've read some stuff so Mm -hmm. um yeah 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 you hear that, girls? Well, now you don't have nothing to say. <laughs> okay. So here's here's a, what I want to ask too, like, because I've I've talked to some some black parents who were like watching this stuff happen on the news, watching the George Floyd video, which I still have not seen. I know, every, I think everyone else in the house has seen it. I won't, you know, watch it. 
Um, and while we're there, let me just say this. The reason I won't watch it and the reason why I think that it is it is bad for the health, the mental health of black folks to watch this um, is simply because to continue to watch black trauma unfold over and over again, it's just, it, it is just naturally hard on the emotions. And most of us are not going to get counseling following mm-hmm. what we see. We just watch it and walk around with that trauma in our bodies without any outlet for a lot of us because you still got to go to work the next day. You still got to raise kids. You still got to do whatever it is that you have to do. You still have to do those things while carrying the trauma of watching another black body fall in the streets. I don't think it's healthy for us to consume it. I don't think that if, if that, if, if we're white folks who have still not come to the conclusion that America at its core is anti-black, there is no amount, there is no video that's going to prove that. So that's my side commercial for that video, whatever. But I know that I've talked to black parents who said, I've, we have shielded our kids from seeing this. So, you know, seeing the, the demonstrations in the streets from seeing the, the violent demonstrations that have been happening. And I remember when Ferguson, when the Ferguson uprising happened, um, I don't remember how old Gabby was. But I do remember our children seeing it. Now, now our kids are older. They're teenagers. But, like, we didn't feel like we needed to shield our kids from seeing it. And I'm not saying it's wrong, you know, for people to shield their, their, their kids from seeing it. Every parent has to make their own decisions. But how do you, th- what do you... What do you, as a mom, feel about how much of this your children should see how you talk to your children about what they're seeing unfold should a parent allow their children to see it well obviously it depends on the age of the child um but we we've always been parents who have lived by we'd rather they hear it first at home and so when I'm listening to you talk about the Fer- Ferguson riots, I mean, we were watching CNN with our kids yesterday um, as we're watching these riots unfold, like in Atlanta and, and Minnesota. <clears throat> I don't ever want our kids, once they reach a certain age, to go to school and people are talking about things mm. that they are clueless about mm. that matter. So can we rewind that? (laughs) Say it again. This is the last part. Say it again. I don't want our kids to go to school and kids are talking about things and our kids are clueless about those things that matter. I don't want them to be like, well, wait, what are you talking about when it comes to um, rioting or whatever in another city because people are upset over another black person being shot or killed I, I don't want I want them to know that this is what is going on. Hmm. But I also don't want them to, like you said, be watching these videos of these men getting shot in their cars and they're dying as as someone's on live. I don't want them to walk around with that kind of grief. But again, we do want them to be aware that this is the country that they live in. This is the state of America. And therefore, because these things are happening, we have to keep educating our kids. 
So to each their own, I don't think it's right or wrong one way or the other. We've just always lived with this sense of if they're going to hear about it, we want them to hear about it from us first. We want to be able to have the conversation with them. We want our narrative to be the one that is the foundation for them. And then they can go off and have conversations based upon what we've already discussed at home. Yes. 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 As I said earlier, we have friends and know of people who are uh, who have adopted white parents who've adopted black kids mm-hmm. we always think about them when stuff like this happens we think yes. oh man um i wonder if so-and-so how they're doing i mean they're raising black kids and and one thing i've always said about um our children is that though we live in a predominantly white area um they come home to a all 100 percent black house so they go to Thanksgiving dinner around a 90% black fam- extended family. Christmas, 90% black extended family. So they are constant at home and in their, in their safest spaces, there is a sense of blackness that allows them to be in touch with their cultural identity. Mm-hmm. For our white friends, um, who have adopted black children. That's not the case. Most of the time, if you're talking about white parents adopting black kids, they're adopting them and they're going out to the suburbs with them, and they're living in similar environments to the ones that we live in. They're going to all-white schools. They're playing sports with mostly white kids. They are doing extracurricular stuff with mostly white folks. Their Christmases with white folks. Their, their Thanksgiving, church. their church is white. So what can those parents do to make sure that they do all that they can to preserve the cultural identity of those black kids. And then I have another question following that, or you want me to talk about the second question while you think about the first one? No, hold on the second one, okay, let me because hold. I already hold. have the answer oh, you're, to you're right, you're right about to slap this one. You're telling me. You're right, you're right about to slap this answer. Okay, go ahead. Listen. Go ahead. No. Um, you know, I, first I'll speak from the perspective of white people, white parents, stop raising black girls because I have black girls. And one of the things that I first and foremost that I'm always drawn to, that always rubs me the wrong way, that frustrates me, that breaks my heart is when I see parents not caring about their black daughter's hair. The hair. They can't be walking around with the hair busted. <laughs> I'm not saying it's busted. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, babe. It's not busted, but you can tell that it's not being taken care of a lot of the times. Not all the time, a lot of the time. And I'm not... Time out, because everyone just, you know, sort of said, what the heck, Dad, and babe. What is the difference between not taken care of and busted? It just sounded a little more harsh. It was too harsh. Busted was too harsh. I'm sorry, anybody out there. You talked about somebody's kids looking busted. I wasn't saying... I haven't named anybody whose kids look busted. In fact, if you're listening to this and you know us and we know you... I don't know anyone whose kids have busted hair. Okay, I just threw it out there in general. Anyway, um, I can speak from the standpoint of, I don't even know, you 
<laughs> it's so annoying. You said those who pet peeve and people yes. don't do their hair. Listen, kids, because that's you got white parents. You have a responsibility to find, do your research, mm. get on Yelp, ask some of your black friends, which I'm hoping you have some of them. Mm. Where do I take my daughter to get her hair done? And son to get his hair cut. For sure. You can speak to the to the barbershop experience. For sure. It is vitally important because I, I I can tell you stories from my kids who go to school, have always gone to school with majority white kids. Every last one of them, maybe with the exception of Amaya, I don't know. Anyway, have gone through phases where they have wanted their hair to be something different than what it is because i believe the number one reason is because they're they were they're always around these white kids girls who have straight hair and it's flowy and it's pretty and it's whatever else have you and if you're not intentional about putting your black daughters in an environment where someone is teaching them about proper hair care mm. Mm. Uh, and they're not sitting in someone, some black woman or black man's chair where he is telling them how incredible their hair is mm. as they're combing their hair, as they're washing their hair, they're not giving them proper technique on how to maintain their hair. They're not educating you on proper technique on how to maintain their hair. You're doing your daughter a disservice. Because she will never grow up to appreciate the hair that she has. She will always want something different because you didn't do the work of driving and sitting in an environment and putting your daughter in an environment where other people around them are celebrating their natural, mm. their natural mm -hmm. hair. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that to me is so important for their self-esteem, for their self-confidence for their acceptance of the hair that they have for their understanding of their hair it's there's so much to that that is so important and they will teach them about headscarves at night they will teach them about satin pillowcases they will teach them about hydration they will teach them about not washing your hair every day even though your mom washes her hair every day they will teach them about proper products to use in their hair they will teach them so much that they won't get in your white salon that you are going to to get your hair cut. For sure. And they and they won't, if they don't go to black spaces, they go get their hair done where you get your hair done or go get their hair cut where you get your hair cut. There's conversations that they will miss out on. There yes. is an othering that is just natural to happen to them by sitting in these all-white salons and all-white barbershops. There is just, we, we've, there's these natural conversations that come up when you sit down in a chair if you've got black hair and oh I love your hair or whatever or whatever it is I, my barber has never said oh I love your hair though my hair is magnificent but they, my barber sees hair like mine all the time right so it's not so it's not this othering when I sit down in the barber chair that is such an incredible point but I also think along those same lines is that I think that you should be mindful of if you're going to put your kids in sports again we're talking to parents who have adopted black um, children who are who are non-black if you're going to put your children in sports I would be mindful about putting them in sports where there's more black folks playing 
like more black kids that they can interact with. I just think that's important, especially, again, because of the fact that you have, and it is, um, it is an admirable, admirable thing that many white folks have done, seeing that there were, were children of color in foster care saying we want to go get those kids out of foster care mm-hmm. because we want, to, we want to provide a better home for them. Absolutely. Absolutely admirable, not condemning that. But you have also uh, brought them into a space that is foreign to them, that is not their culture. And it, it part of the responsibility that you take on when you say, I want to take this kid out of this environment and put them in a better environment uh, is to make sure that they can connect to the culture, make sure they can connect it to their roots and who they are. Absolutely. And I mean, and I, there, we, again, we have white friends who have adopted black kids. I understand the idea or the feeling that I'm going to be the only white woman sitting in that black salon. I understand that that may feel uncomfortable. Yes, you're going to sit there for several hours because black hair requires several hours to do. We don't get out of the chair and, or we don't get out of the shower or get up from under the bowl and blow dryer with a brush and a, and a blow dryer and you're done. And all, you're, no, there's a, it requires a lot more work. That just whatever. That's fine. That's why I had to wait to start this podcast because you were doing your hair. Yes, you did. Wash day is hours. It's not just. 30 minutes. Anyway, um, but it, uh, so I understand being in a space that is uncomfortable, that you're going to feel like I don't fit, I don't belong, I don't understand what they're saying, I don't, we don't relate. Yes, all of that may be true. Imagine how your daughter feels on a daily basis in white spaces. You can go sit for two hours. In this uncomfortability, three, four hours, however long it is, in this uncomfortability to give your daughter the experience that is so important because hair on a black girl is so important. Yes. It is, it's part of our identity. It is part of who we are, our hair. We're proud of our hair. We love our hair. We take care of our hair. We educate ourselves on our hair. You don't know the number of videos that my daughters watch about hair. Hmm. I didn't know that until you just said it. They're constantly watching videos on hair care, different techniques, and so it is a part of our identity. And to rob your daughter of that is sad. I mean, and I guess the alternative for those of you that are listening to this who have, or maybe you're considering adopting black children, maybe if you're not um, in a position where you're ready to or wanting to do that level of work and understanding, then maybe you shouldn't adopt black children um, because it's, it is important to not traumatize children by bringing them into environments that we believe to be safer than the one they're in if it's not going to be a truly safe environment for all of who they are. And listen, I too get it. That you may not, because you live in the suburbs or live in an area where there's not a lot of black people, there may not be black salons where you are. I drive an hour Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to go get my hair cut. Cut? Where did you get your hair cut? I go to Alameda to get my hair cut. Oh, I just don't remember. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying you're lying. I'm just saying... (gasps) (laughs) We drive the girls to get their hair braided outside of... 
outside of where we live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there aren't the shops that we're looking for where we are. That's fine. Uh, yeah, I got to drive to get my hair twisted. I drive to get my hair cut. You may have to. That's that's the responsibility that you have. So you can you can say, well, there's no salons where I live. Okay, look outside of your town. I guarantee you, you may have to drive 45 minutes, but it's once a month, once every few weeks. I think it's worth it for your daughter to be in an environment that is going to help her educate her on something that is so important to who she is. Uh, yes, absolutely. And the same for a barbershop. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think black boys should go to barbershops um, for sure. If especially if you're, you know, if you were adopted by, if if you are a non-black parent who's adopted a black son, absolutely should go to the barbershop. And then also you have the extra responsibility the older they are especially when they start to drive the same stuff that we have to tell our children about driving you have to tell your kid about driving the same stuff that we have to say to our children when there's another act of anti-black violence that is in the news and circulating on social media you have to say to your children that just is a part of the responsibility of raising black children whether you are black or white or brown or red yellow it does not matter if you are raising children who are black, half black, quarter black, dark skin, in any way, shape, or form, there are things that you have to say to them. There are conversations you have to have. There are rituals that you have to take part in that are important for their upbringing and for them growing up and moving into the world where they face challenges that white folks do not face. The other thing I'll say, if your kids, I mean, we sports, hair, those are two things. One of the other things I think are important, too, is do your research, find programs, find weekend events, find after-school activities, find summer programs where your kids can be in spaces with other black kids. There's Jack and Jill's in cities all over the world, there or all over the country. I don't know if they're around the world. It's a program called Jack and Jill. There are African-American scholar programs all over the place. There's coding for black girls and black boys. There's, there are summer camps. There are science programs. There are all of these organizations that have created spaces for black kids that you need to be researching, finding, and involving your kids in those kind of things. That gives them, if your, your kids may not play sports, so here's something else that they may be interested in that gives them another space where they're not the other. It gives them another space where they can look around the room and go, everyone or the majority of these people in this room look like me. Heads aren't turning when I walk in the door. Heads aren't turning when I sit down at my desk or in circles and whatever else where people are looking like, oh, there's a black girl that just walked in the room. There's a black boy that walked in the room. They're walking in a spaces where they know they're not the center of attention. They're one of everyone else in the room. Yeah, and before we wrap up, I want to I wanna be mindful of mothers like Wanda Cooper-Jones, who is the mother of Ahmaud Arbery. Um, mothers and fathers like the parents of George Floyd, the parents of Breonna Taylor, the parents of Sean Reed, the parents of Nina Pop, the parents, those are just a few of the parents um, of the many names that we have now memorialized by putting them next to a hashtag that have, are carrying a grief 
right now that is far heavier than anything that any of us experience mm-hmm. as people who have just watched. Okay, so there's there's black folks who feel the grief of looking at the television and seeing someone who looks like them lose their lives. Then there's a whole nother level of grief being the parent of a black person who, especially a black person who was killed by people who are supposed to uphold the law. So I want to end this podcast by being mindful of those people, being aware of, of, of them and... Um, if you are a person who prays, I want you to pray for those parents today. If you're a parent who prays, if you're a parent who meditates, if you're a parent who does yoga, whatever you do to tap into some form of spirituality, when you're doing that, the next time you do it, be mindful and carry these parents in your thoughts and in your spiritual practice because their lives matter, their children's lives matter. And they should be in our thoughts and be in our prayers. And we should also be mindful because we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about like, you know, just if if I'm being frank, we were talking about what it is to be parents of black uh, people, black children in suburban areas. But there are plenty of parents out there who are busting their ass, doing the best that they can to parent children who live in more urban areas, who live in more impoverished communities, who are Mm -hmm. trying to do their best to raise children. We need to remember them, and we need to be thinking about how we can help them, not sending more of a police force and having them live under this this harsh and unfair police state. Mm We need to be thinking about how can we help to resource them if we're if there's white folks listening to this, not how can we save them, but how can we help to resource them? How can we help a family of people who we may know about? How can we find out about the black single mom who lives 25 miles down the road from us who we can support? Mm-hmm. Because if you really want to do so, you can figure out a way to do it. Your church, your mosque, your temple your place of worship, if you're a a person who has a place of worship, or your community, whatever community it is that you have, you can find a way to do that if you really want to. Do you want to, um, you want to do the close? I don't, I just want to reiterate, as you're praying, as you're trying to figure out places where you can support moms, families, I want to remind you of the quote that I opened with um, from John O'Reilly that says, what are you doing to make sure that you're raising children who won't kill mine? Boom. We have a responsibility to raise our black children to be safe. Mm. What are you doing to make sure that our work is not in vain? Girls, incredible job being quiet. Could you say something else so people know that, like, I don't want people thinking I was lying when I said you're in the room. Morgan? There you go. Thank you so much for listening uh, to this. Thank you to all of you who are supporters of our Patreon. 
the link to that is in the bio. If you are not yet a supporter, not let, not yet a part of that community, you can uh, do so by clicking on that link. I would like to thank Comfort Fit for the music. The song you're listening to once again is called Sorry. Thank you to all of you who share and rate and review this podcast. And thank you for contending for a better world with us one conversation at, at a time. time. Peace! Thank you.